Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. of pod my name is kave i'm mature now i don't do silly things like scream into the opening i don't yell into the mic no because this is a serious podcast about serious things with serious people and no one more serious than my guest co-host today young man named parker james parker welcome back to the show my friend it is a pleasure and a delight to be back in the house of pod. Wow. Yeah. Both those things in this economy. God bless I know. You. It's listen, I'm making ends meet one way or another. Tell people where what you do, who you are. Are you a doctor? Um, I'm a doctor of of words. No degree though. Um no, I'm a writer, uh, I'm a podcaster. You may have heard me and or Dr. Hoda Kave uh no, on Dr. My own Hoda. Show. That's Dr. Hoda to you, young man. <laughs> You may you may have heard Dr. Hoda on my own show, A Modern Proposal, where we talk about very sad things with very fun endings. Well, fun's an interesting word, but uh, That's yeah. right. It's a great show. I really enjoy it. I enjoy being on it, and you all should check it out. Before we go on to our guest, who I am very excited to introduce to the listening audience, I am also going to put a plug in for my show. And what I mean by that is I want you to go write a review for me at iTunes, if you're willing and interested. I'm not the boss of you. I can't make you do it. But consider going, or he's the boss, maybe. But <laughs> consider going to iTunes and writing a review. If you enjoy the show, I would appreciate that. But now, really importantly, I want to introduce you to someone that I'm excited to speak to today. Um, Dr. Jonathan Howard, a neurologist and psychiatrist at New York University uh, Langone Health and Bellevue Hospital in New York. Uh, Dr. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to the discussion. Did, did I get your titles right? Did I get it correct? You left off Master of the Universe, um, but I mm. think other than that, you pretty much got it right. That's basically what I do. Neurology, uh, psychiatry, Bellevue, and NYU. Are you more of a man-at-arms or are you more of a he-man? Hmm. Let's see. I, I just kind of sit, sit back and direct others. So that's all. Uh, you, <laughs> I'm at the are, point in my career where I tell others what to do and uh, make it sound easy. That's what I tell. What I, that that that's where I'm at. Well, Parker, do do you know the reference Masters of the Universe? Did you grow up? Do you know what He Man is? Who He Man? I was? do know what He Man is, but that's because of um, you know, like uh, staying up too late uh, and, and watching, watching very old Adult Swim. Um, and they used to have around like three thirty four in the morning for uh -huh, um, uh -huh. for all of the certain styles of yeah, people. Yeah. 
uh, you know, they would they would play what, like wait, some of the well, classics. What does that mean? Certain styles of people. What are you implying there? Like stoners? Uh, Is I'm that what in, you're trying to say? Perhaps uh, someone who it partakes in a left-handed cigarette from time to time. Ah, uh, I see. Okay, very good. It was like fifth. No, that came out like 30 years before you were born. So I'm not surprised you don't know the cartoon. <laughs> Anyways, Dr. Howard, um, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book. We want them infected, how the failed quest for herd immunity led doctors to embrace the anti-vaccine movement and blinded Americans to the threat of COVID. It's a it's a lengthy subtitle there, but I think it's important because it lays out the argument pretty well. Let's start by asking you this. Why should a psychiatrist and neurologist be writing a book about COVID and the response of these people? Yeah, so I think I have two sets of qualifications that uh, prepared me well to write this book. Um, the first is I, I worked at Bellevue Hospital throughout the pandemic, so I witnessed uh, what COVID could do with my own eyes. This doesn't make me right, of course, but I think that it, it gave me some humility about what this virus can do and about what can happen when things go out of control. Um, I did see some young people die. The youngest person I saw was a healthy 23-year-old die. So I, I gained some respect for this virus. And if I was to successfully have minimized this virus at any point during the pandemic for large swaths of the community, um, I would potentially be seeing more patients and be exposing myself to more risk. So uh, I think that doctors who worked a lot with COVID patients had some gut understanding of the virus and at least some skin in the game. So that's qualification number one. Qualification number two is I've been thinking and writing about the anti-vaccine movement since at least 2010, when uh, my old friend, a doctor I trained with, Kelly Brogan, uh, became a shining star of the anti-vaccine movement. And when I first encountered anti-vaccine ideas, uh, they were sort of superficially plausible. Um, I was really taken aback at how often they just lied. So I, I would read something that an anti-vaxxer wrote. I'd be like, oh my God, vaccines don't work. They're a hoax. Then I would do some more reading and some, some research uh, on, on the topic. And I'd find out, oh my gosh, they just totally lied. And so in 2018, uh, I wrote a book chapter about the anti-vaccine movement with law professor Dory Reese. Um, I sometimes made memes for this page, refutations to anti-vaccine memes, in which you had to crystallize pro-vaccine talk or pro-vaccine refutations to anti-vaccine talking points and very short infographics and memes. But I learned over the course of the past decade just to master them all. And I can spot them from a mile away now. You've been on the front lines, both literally in terms of treating COVID patients and in the virtual space as well, dealing the meme war, the great meme war of the Correct. 2020s. Correct. Let's just start with a basic definition. Can you define what herd immunity is for us? So herd immunity is sort of a state where a virus is reproducing and it, it, it is reproducing at a rate of less than one. So where each person who is infected infects less than one person on average. So the degree of uh, the amount of herd immunity, or the amount of immunity it takes to reach herd immunity kind of depends on two things, the virus and the population. So a, a virus that is very contagious, unfortunately, like COVID is going to have a really high herd immunity threshold. Um, and of course, it depends on how much immunity is generated by each infection or a vaccine. So something like measles, where you get it once and you're done, or the vaccine, you get it twice and you're done, I mean, 99% effective, uh, you know, you can get herd immunity with enough vaccination. Um, and then it depends on how a population behaves. So if you had sort of this population of hermits living in the woods, not interacting, they would have a lower herd immunity threshold than people who went to karaoke bars, for example. I guess that's of the proposed mechanism for how it might work here. But can you explain how proponents of it in the face of COVID laid it out? and how it actually turned out. I mean, let's not bury the lead. Let's let's summarize your 600 plus page book in in one sentence here. I know that's impossible. But but give me the breakdown. What was the proposed mechanism that proponents of it for COVID had and how did things actually seem to turn out? Well, so the title of the book is to be taken quite literally, We Want Them Infected. I mean, that quote comes not just from some random crackpot, but from this guy, Dr. Paul Alexander, who was an epidemiologist and who was uh, an advisor to the Trump in, uh, uh, administration. And the full sort of quote is, infants, kids, teens, young people, and young adults, middle age with no conditions, et cetera, have zero to no little risk. 
So we use them to develop herd. We want them infected. So there was this idea uh, that COVID was very, very dangerous for grandma, for old people, uh, and maybe people with underlying conditions, but relatively benign for the vast majority of the population. And there was this theory that if you just let basically young, healthy, quote, non-vulnerable people live a normal life and magically wall off about 80 million Americans from everyone else, that the virus would circulate amongst the young. Uh, we'd all get infected, we'd all be fine, herd immunity would arise, the virus would you know, basically disappear, and uh, vulnerable people who'd been basically prisoners in their own home could emerge after three to six months with the virus gone, very few deaths, and the economy saved. So it was kind of this, you know, what everyone wanted to hear, you know, you know, politicians were told, you know, the key to stopping, you know, the key to stopping the virus uh, is basically to, 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 to do nothing. Uh, and, and you can save the economy, you can, you can save lives, and it will all be over in three to six months. That's not a time frame that I'm making up. Yeah, I have a page because um, a you're a great writer, first of all. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It just it flows very very well. It's just very nice. Um, yeah, from and I, I might be jumping ahead here, so please, you know, in 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 case I am, apologies. Um, the Great Barrington Declaration said, "quote." Um, if age-wide lockdown measures were are used to try and suppress the disease, it could take a year or two or three, making it very difficult for older people to protect themselves for that long. If focus protection is used, it will likely only take three to six months. Yeah, well, that didn't happen now. No, it didn't, it didn't yeah. work out that great. Yeah. So tell us what actually happened and tell us in particular what happened to these these groups that people thought wouldn't have any problem like kids, uh, youth. Well, the vast majority did just fine. I'm not here to sort of scaremonger. Uh, you know, uh, the average child with COVID is is not going to have a serious illness. But multiply rare events by 73 million American children and rare events began to add up. So uh, I'm only speaking about people under the age of 18 here, but around 2,000 children have died. Uh, close to 200,000 children have been hospitalized. I mean, none of these numbers are exact. There's rooms, you know, there, there, there's reasons why these numbers are a little too low. There's reasons why they might be too high, but, you, you know, just bear with me. Um, and tens of millions of children have felt sick and not all of them made a uh, a full recovery. I mean, some survivors are, are very devastated with amputations, lung transplantation, strokes. I mean, again, those are rare, but it's not zero. And then, you know, a lot of children, it, it, we, I think there's more questions than answers about long COVID, but suffice it to say, some children don't fully recover. And we're going to be learning about the consequences uh, of repeat infections for the rest of our careers. And even after vaccines were available, this we wanted them infected mentality still continued. I mean, one might sort of argue that in a world without vaccines, maybe this made sense. You know, we can't all just be in our own home for <laughs> can't lock up my 18 year old for the rest of her life. Um uh, but but even after vaccines became available, uh, they still wanted them infected and they were very successful. Uh, pediatric vaccination rates are very low, same for young adults. And some children, some young adults suffered needlessly. And before the pandemic, this wasn't tolerable. You know, if someone said this exact same thing about measles, which they did, by the way, or chicken pox, uh, they were rightly viewed as a pariah, as a freak in the medical community. And now these same ideas that in 2019 would have gotten you branded as an Andrew Wakefield type are coming out of Stanford, Harvard, UCSF, and Johns Hopkins. So something uh, related to that and something related to Parker asked there, can you tell us about the Great Barrington Declaration for those of us who haven't heard about it? You talk about it in your book and you lay it out very nicely there, but tell us a little bit about the Great Barrington Declaration and what it was. So the Great Barrington Declaration was a document, it's very short, anyone can read it in about two minutes, um, that was published on October 4th, 2020. Uh, it was written by three epidemiologists, or two epidemiologists and one health economist, Jay Bhattacharya from Harvard, uh, Martin Kuldorf, 
who was at the time at Harvard, and Sunita Gupta, uh, who was an epidemiologist or is an epidemiologist at, at Oxford. It was uh, a highway sort of choreographed spectacle. Uh, they were all flown into Great Barrington, Massachusetts, where a camera crew awaited and journalists awaited. And it was written under the direction of a man by the name of Jeffrey Tucker, who is sort of an uh, anarcho-capitalist and Rand uh, acolyte who has a history of writing for white supremacist magazines, who in 2016 wrote an article called Let the Kids Work, which is an overtly pro-child <laughs> labor article. And he also wrote an article saying children should smoke, teenagers should smoke because they can smoke while they're teens and it's cool. And then they can quit while they're young adults uh, before problems set in. So this man who wants kids to work uh, and smoke uh, <laughs> during their, their, their break, um, you know, really profoundly influence our pandemic response. Anyways, the Great Barrington Declaration was sort of divided into two parts. And it was based on this idea, which we've discussed that, you know, which is true that, you know, older people in nursing homes have a much higher risk than a healthy 10 year old. And it was based on this idea that we could, they were very much opposed to lockdowns because they felt kind of correctly, that it was the working class who bore the brunt of, of the lockdowns, while people, uh, the laptop class, as they called them, could stay at home. Now, of, <laughs> course, the, of course, the laptop class describes them, and the working class describes me. I worked throughout the pandemic. I don't mean to sort of portray myself as some sort of blue-collar regular Joe. I get paid very well for what I do, but I socially distanced for five days during the pandemic. Some of the most hate I've ever received in my life was uh, when Jay Bhattacharya, one of these authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, retweeted something I tweeted in a negative way. And his tweet was basically, look at this doctor, basically, he's laptop class. Look at this guy. I'm like, laptop? I mean, I have a laptop, but I didn't use it at work when I was working with actual patients with COVID. <laughs> I was so, I was so, I didn't understand it. But that tweet, that direction of that tweet, there was so much like, hate mail and angry tweets at me for like my whole day. I'm like, I can't even open my Twitter because there's just like hundreds of comments based on that. Let's go into this great Barrington declaration a little bit more. You, you laid out a little bit of the people behind it. Let me ask you the people doing it. What is their, what is the motivation of these people who are, who are behind the great Barrington declaration? Is it really that they are working class heroes that they're fighting for the working class person that, cause they always talk about that. I mean, they talk about lockdowns, which ended about, you know, depends where you live, of course, but about two and a half years ago. I mean, they talk about them, um, you know, as these things that were just catastrophic, just devastating, uh, sorts of things. And listen, I don't want to minimize the harm they caused. Uh, you know, my my paycheck was secure. I recognize that. Um, I was never lonely. Uh, you know, my kids, of course, had homeschooling for a year, so I was not totally unaffected. And, you know, the city I love, New York City, shut down. But I was relatively spared. You know, I didn't have to worry about where my paycheck was going to come from. So, um, you know, I just want to be very careful about that. Um, but these guys, uh, all three of them, it is a little bit more important to talk about who they were, because all three of them really underestimated coronavirus from the very first day. So Jay Bhattacharya um, wrote an article on March 24th, 2020 um, in the Wall Street Journal called, Is the Coronavirus as Deadly as They Say? Uh, current estimate, estimates about the COVID-19 fatality rate may be too high by orders of magnitude. So he thought in this article that it would kill about 20 to 40,000 people. Uh, and he thought that locking down for such a virus would have been crazy. And maybe he was right. Uh, Sunita Gupta said the same thing. I mean, she thought that she declared herd immunity um, in the UK very early. And Martin Kuldorf also declared thought Sweden might be at herd immunity in April of 2020. So all three of these people underestimated the virus to a huge degree. And they thought that one infection meant perfect immunity. If that wasn't the case, uh, their plan, as they put it, broke down. Yeah. If I can add something to that, um, as before I was able to be a part of the laptop class in 2020, I was working very much so in the service industry. Um, I was working as a chef. And so obviously that got axed almost immediately. Um, and so the only place that I could find a paycheck 
was at a local dispensary in uh, the state of Colorado where I live. And boy, let me tell you, um, if you were to ask any of the heavily blue class Wyoming workers that would allegedly come down to Colorado buy as much weed as they could and drive back, if you were to tell them any of this, they would, I think, A, their eyes would just glaze over and be like, who are you talking about? I've never heard of these people in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Or they would say some, or they would basically say, oh, all doctors are crooks. <clears throat> all doctors are just like, oh, they're just lying to you. The disease isn't real. Like, <laughs> Well, that's part of like the, the basic grift of these people, which is to say, we are the ones that really care about you. We know we are away from like the consensus opinion, but that's because we're not pharma shills. We're a part yeah. of something bigger, something greater. Um, that's part of like the grift and how it works. Now, Dr. Howard, you mentioned something about Sweden there. I feel like Sweden gets brought up a lot. You talk about this in your book also, but it gets brought up a lot by the anti-vaccine, anti-mask crowd is like uh, particularly earlier on as as like, this is how you should do it. As, as as the role model for how the U.S. should follow. Can you tell us how things actually went in Sweden, what they did and how things went for them? Yeah, so I what I know about Sweden mostly comes from listening to people who, who live there. So Sweden, I, I think it's really sort of a tale of two pandemics in Sweden. I think during the first half, they did really poorly. Uh, and some of the stuff that came out of there was was shocking. Uh, uh, they'd lost a very large percentage of their nursing home population early in the pandemic. Uh, there were reports of people not being taken to the hospital, be, be, being given morphine instead of oxygen, essentially sort of euthanizing them. Um, they had a much higher COVID death rate uh, than uh, their Nordic neighbors. And um you know, they, they failed to achieve herd immunity. Now, a lot of people sort of say on the flip side, they kept schools open and they kept everything open and businesses open, but that's not really true. They never closed elementary schools as a nation, but individually, elementary schools closed for very long periods of time. They did have to close high schools for a while. They uh, had to limit gatherings to eight people. Uh, Zoos closed, you know, all sorts of public things closed there in a way that that wasn't sort of really publicized. And so a lot of people uh, portray this myth uh, that, you know, Sweden never closed schools, when in fact, a lot of children there, and this comes from people who live there, and news reports on, on the subject, um, you know, had homeschooling for many months at a time. And they did do a good job the second half of the pandemic, mostly because they did a wonderful job vaccinating their adult population. So I think like, um, from 18 and up, you know, something like 80% of, of Swedes are vaccinated. So they did relatively well the second half of the pandemic. Uh, but they really paid a price for letting it run rampant during the first half. And even then, you know, you really can't compare the U.S. to Sweden, right? This, you know, country, relatively sort of small, homogenous country, at least in my opinion, uh, you know, my, my stereotype of these ultra fit, you know, Nordic people you know, who spend their days, you know, cross country skiing, you know, with Americans and, and sort of all of our underlying medical problems, smoking rates, comorbidities. So even then, it's really not an apples apples to comparison, in my opinion. That, you know, we have a lot of multi-generational homes that I just don't think exist in Sweden. People, uh, I think there's very few uh, multi-generational homes then. So we had a lot, lot of there. So we had a lot of challenges in the U.S. that they probably didn't. Would you say, given that context of they, they let it run rampant the first half, they tightened their belt, they got their vaccines out the second half, given that even though it is a very different culture, there's an aspect of American exceptionalism that that are telling people, well, you know, sure, some other nations kind of did it similar to us, but we don't have to follow them. We're not the same as them. So therefore, what we do doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know if it was as much American exceptionalism as because this sort of movement was, you know, to purposely infect young people was sort of uh, international. Um, you know, there was definitely something I, I would sort of say an American contrarianism uh, where people view freedom as doing the opposite of what the government tells you. So I think there's a lot of people who if the vaccines were banned, they would have demanded them 
correctly as a suppressed miracle cure. So I, I think there's that strain uh, in, in American psyche. And it's not always a bad thing, right? You know, we're, 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 you know, if the government tells us to all put on uniforms and march and invade Canada, you know, hopefully a lot of people would resist. No uh, way. Say, I'm fucking yeah. taking over Canada. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent for that. Fuck those guys. They think they're better than us. Have you been traveling out in other countries and they wear their little Canadian flag on their backpack? Like they're like, we're not American. We're cool. No, you're just like us. And they deserve to be, they, we should take them, Dr. Howard. Well, I like that they wear their little flags because we need to identify them because they look and sound just like us. They're very tricky and sneaky yeah. that way, except they say oot. That's the yeah. giveaway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if they don't say a sentence without the oot or the hoos or the mobile, um, you got to have the flag because now, see, I spend a lot of time traveling, namely in Mexico. And, uh, you know, you'll be out on the beach, a little cantina, grabbing a delicious plate of food, maybe a couple beers because, you know, it's. You're on vacation. What? You're not old enough to drink, Parker. What are you doing? I... <laughs> what are you doing drinking beers? I'm older than five. Mexico, you can do what you want. We all know this. <laughs> freedom. That's real. Freedom. That's real. Mexico has real laissez-faire freedom. Anyway, yes. you'll be, you know, you'll be sitting there and you're like, you know, you'll have your extra line and, you know, you see the Canadian flag. You're like, oh, another one. And you just kind of like hit him in the back of the head. They turn around. You're like, oh. You talking about me, buddy? And they're like, oh, another one. You're like, yeah, what well, must have been that guy down there. Simple, I'm from Ontario. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If you need exactly. to bust it out. Actually, <laughs> that, that might have been a Chicago accent I just did. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Dr. Howard, speaking of countries that did things differently, though, did was there other countries that, you know, you think handled this better than us, COVID better than us? And why? Well, certainly some countries had a fraction of our COVID deaths. I think the country that stands out is New Zealand, which uh, had the advantage of being an island, though so did the UK. Um, and they used some of the you know very, very strict lockdowns at the start of the pandemic and occasionally throughout um, to squelch the virus until they could vaccinate their citizens. And um, I think I calculated that if we had had Sweden's death rate, something like 800,000 Americans would, would, would still be alive. I mean, they couldn't keep the virus out forever, um, you know, but that was the main point of the lockdowns to just buy time until, you know, when we locked out, you know, when we got a vaccine and notably we got a vaccine uh, two months after uh, the, the, the Great Barrington Declaration was published. And, you know, we started vaccinating people uh, in December 2020. So it, it very, very, very quickly became, uh, in, in my opinion, a, a relic. Um, this idea that we should just, you know, let the virus rip amongst young, unvaccinated young people. You you know, you in your book, you talk about a lot of doctors. You talk about the people in the Great Barrington Declaration. You talk about people from pretty prestigious institutions. Um, Dr. Bhattacharya, who I don't think he completed a medical residency, but he's he works at Stanford. Um, and there's people at UCSF who you talk about in depth. Um, people that are generally very trusted uh, in the medical community and in uh, beyond uh, in the general public. There are a lot of them got behind this. I mean, not as much as obviously they were a minority compared to the general medical consensus, I think. Um, But a lot of people got behind this. What was the motivation of these people? I know there can be a lot of different motivations, but what was the motivation of these people? Yeah, so so you're asking me to be a little bit of a psychic, and it, you know, I don't. In some ways, I don't really know because I haven't spoken to them. Um, of all the doctors that I've met in the uh, discussed in the book, I've only met one, uh, a, a sort of pre-pandemic mm-hmm. quack by the name of Kelly Brogan. Uh, um, anyways, um, so I, I think a lot of them, as I've alluded to, underestimated the virus very early on, and just sort of had a lot of trouble saying. I was wrong about that. So uh, a lot of them started, or some of them at least, started to spread uh, what became QAnon-level conspiracies, that people were dying with COVID, not of COVID, that ventilators killed people, that you can't trust death certificates, that it was just you know 90-year-olds with cancer who were dying anyway. Um, so they started to spread a, a lot of those conspiracy theories. But I, I think that a lot of them uh, had a hard time admitting that they were wrong. I think that a lot of them have become kind of radicalized over the course of the pandemic. I think that 
that their behavior would be very different if it wasn't for Twitter, uh, but they have blocked every doctor who sort of disagrees with them. And their Twitter feeds are sort of full of these people saying, you know, crazy things about how farm, you know, Pfizer is trying to depopulate the world and, and, and this sort of thing. So there's this phenomenon called audience capture. And some of them have parlayed this into sort of lucrative side hustles. Uh, they become pandemic celebrities and they are on Fox News during the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And they make a lot of money writing for Substack and they have popular YouTube channels. And what I say is kind of boring. You know, what I say is, yeah, you should vaccinate kids. You know, there's nothing that makes me feel cool and edgy and special about that that uh you know i don't oh, get these people saying you know what in cool, a man you're cool i yeah, am you're... cool but i'm not edgy there's a difference you know no it's true you're not an yeah. edge lord that's true not edge lord but per perhaps edge deacon because as i was reading through this man you make uh, a lot of like really poignant points to uh minus the alliteration there um of just how, while we're all presumably sitting in our armchairs here talking about the medical grifting, the echo chambers, what we might have thought that they've been thinking about, the points you are making are, I mean, obviously, a backed up by a lot of very good science. Uh, and also, it is, it's sort of, in my opinion, kind of pointing the finger at you people, at least in the Great Barrington Declaration, for example, you are what snowballed this into having people yell about how uh, Pfizer is putting microchips in your bloodstream to track everywhere you go. A little bit yes and a little bit no. I mean, I think that... Uh, that would have happened no matter what. As a matter of fact, there was a movement to oppose the vaccine uh, in the spring of 2020, right about now, three years ago, uh, before the vaccine was was even conceived. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so I think some of that would have happened regardless. But I think what they did is they sort of normalized that. I mean, maybe not as quite as crazy as you say, uh, which is an important point that I'll get to. But they normalized that and and and, and spread it. Uh, and they influence powerful uh, politicians. Uh, and that brings us to Ladapo, which I, I know you guys have, have talked about. But I think, you know, what, one thing that I'll, I'll, I'll say, Parker, is they didn't say, for the most part, very crazy things like that. And I think that made them more dangerous because they combined mm -hmm. good advice with protect grandma, protect, uh, you know, people with cancer, uh, but everyone else, COVID is is totally benign and, and and harmless for, and they claimed to be based on science, data, evidence, reason, logic. So their philosophy, their approach to medicine would be no different than mine, uh, in theory, if we were just to sort of you know say it out that way. So I think by mixing good advice with bad advice and not sounding totally crazy, they made totally crazy things sound normal, like it's good when children get sick with COVID. Mm -hmm. You you nailed it. And something that you do really well in your book is you lay out that. Um... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It would be easier for all of us in the medical community if these people were the level of quacks that were like, you know, God wants you to get this virus or that the you get There's demons in your blood <laughs> yeah or you get like endometriosis from sex with demons 
which by the way, there were people who said that during this, <laughs> during this uh, COVID, but you know, the people that you really focus on are not those people. The people that are able to make a reasonable and sound argument, something that sounds really good actually to someone who just listened to it and it's what they want to hear. And more importantly, they have the ear, like you said, of very important people. Like Bhattacharya could be our next, you know, Surgeon General if DeSantis were to win, you know? I mean, Ladapo might, sure, but, you know, after his fraud, I think even Meatball Ron might find that a little bit too distasteful. But, you know, these are people who have the ear of real politicians and real, like, policy makers. But something you also bring up, uh, and you, you mentioned this earlier, I don't know a single one of these people and maybe you can enlighten me, a single one of these contrarians, these people that have been opposing vaccines for kids, opposing masking earlier on, that actually worked with COVID patients. I, I don't know of any, I'm sure they're out there, but are any of these people, educate me, people who've actually worked with COVID patients like yourself? So I think some, um, I talk about Vinay Prasad, who I think on occasion cared for some patients with COVID. Uh, same with Monica Gandhi. Um, same with John Mandrola. I mean, on, on a relatively limited basis, I, I, I suspect, um, I, you know, I don't think that that they worked in, you know, some of the horror show scenes that we experienced early on in the pandemic are, are like Florida during its Delta wave. Uh, you know, I could be wrong about that. Uh, but yeah, that's a really key theme of the book is that most people were completely sheltered from the consequences of their world of their words. You know, that when when they said uh, to young people, go out and get COVID, they weren't going to be the ones who were there sort of mopping up uh, after the mess that they made when uh, some young people got sick and COVID invariably spilled over to the older population. Yeah, you're right. I mean, here in San Francisco, where Dr. Gandhi and Dr. Prasad work, um, we we had our waves and we've had lots of COVID, but I would never say that we reached the level of morgues in the parking lot of the hospital that you guys did in New York City, you know. So I I it is an interesting thing to me. I I, I think it's hard to I don't know of anyone who's been in it that deep and uh, felt otherwise, but there's also it seems to be a bit of a gradient. There's probably people who would say you can't put Vinay Prasad and Monica Gandhi in the same uh, level as someone like Mandrola or Macri. But I don't know, do you think that there, there really is a, a gradation of this? Or do you think that they're even more dangerous if they're considered middle of the road or alt-middle, for example, as some of them went by? Do you think that's even more difficult to deal with? Yeah, well, that was part of the, the the selling point. I mean, I think every doctor in the book would declare themselves some version of of alt middle, right? That they would recognize that COVID's dangerous for grandma and say that it's harmless for everyone else. And this is what distinguishes them from a lot of the pre-pandemic quacks, uh, like my old friend Kelly Brogan, Christian Northrup. Uh, etc. These people kind of even took a further push and said COVID isn't real, COVID is a hoax, viruses don't exist, people are dying of fear, not of COVID. Um, but they weren't platformed by, you know, by the Washington Post, by the Atlantic, by Wall Street Journal, uh, by, by Fox News, etc. But a core thesis of the book is that their ideas, at least for young people, won the pandemic. So if you read some of the pre-pandemic articles, anti-vaccine articles by anti-vaccine doctors, by Sherry Tenpenny, for example, who claimed that COVID vaccines made you magnetic, I mean, these sort of crazy things, and you read what they said about measles, they would say things like, only 500 kids died of measles anyway, um, more kids died of suicide, blah, blah, blah. Then you would read an article by Vinay Prasad or Marty McCary or John Mandrola, and they would say the exact same thing. Only 500 kids died of COVID, more kids died of suicide, blah, blah. You know, so it was their ideas sort of became mainstream. And as someone who was very familiar with pre-pandemic anti-vaccine doctors, that was really sort of a shocking thing. So I have a question for, I'm going to assume mostly the non-medical background folks out there listening. How are these people still allowed to practice medicine? How has the, the various medical boards not stepped in and, you know, saying you are spouting 
unscientifically based evidence, freedom of speech or whatever, right? Like, okay, if I was to pilot a plane and I said, oh, planes don't work by jet fuel, they work by fairy dust and magical wishes, I feel like the FAA might have some issues with me flying a plane. Yeah, so it's a complicated question because medicine has a very strong and very important tradition of academic freedom that that we don't want to be seen as silencing people who, uh, you know, are thinking differently. And a, a good example of this is this uh, Hungarian woman, a Hungarian doctor. I'm going to probably butcher her name, but Karina Kariko, who 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 is this sort of unknown scientist and never got any respect, uh, but her work on mRNA paved the way for the mRNA vaccine. So, you know, we need to leave room for gadflies and people who are sort of saying, you know, you're doing it all wrong. But medicine doesn't really have a, a very good mechanism for dealing with these people because the second, the second there's any hint of any sort of official condemnation, these people are professional victims. They will say, I am being silenced. I am being censored. So Jay Bhattacharya, for example, has been on the national media. Yeah, I think even one standing next to Ron DeSantis saying he's been silenced because, you know, YouTube removed one of his videos. So, so the second you do that, the whole narrative flips. So, for example, if I was to say that Jay Bhattacharya should get fired, uh, that would be the 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 whole take-home point from this podcast. Uh, the, all of his heirs would be swept under the rug and it would just be, oh, Dr. Howard is trying to silence people who have a heterodox view. So it would really backfire. And, I, you know, I don't know what the exact solution to this is. Other than to say, I think that a lot of so-called leaders of American medicine have been so afraid of being called censors, have been been yeah. so afraid of being seen as abusing their power that they have silenced themselves. Uh, yeah. Medical students have shown more courage calling out people in their departments than tenured medical professors. And when I say calling them out, I just mean saying, here's where you're wrong. When you said herd immunity had arrived in the spring of 2021, you were wrong to say herd immunity had arrived. When you called Omicron Omicold, you were wrong to call it Omicold. Uh, when you spread all of these fake statistics about pediatric COVID, that more children died of the flu than died of COVID, when in fact about 2,000 children died of COVID and 200 died of the flu, that was wrong. That was misinformation. So I think people just need to speak up. That's it. I think it's a really good question that you asked, Parker. I mean, and to piggyback a little bit on what Jonathan's saying here, I think that there's, you know, it's it's difficult to affect someone's license. I mean, it took a long time to get Andrew Wakefield to get his license revoked. And, and that guy did irreparable damage, probably greater than than in anyone. I mean, and it was hard to do. So that's not really. And also, some of these people don't practice. It's not like Jay Bhattacharya has a practice. I think he went to medical school, but for him, it was part of like a stepping stone to something else. You know, so a lot of them, it doesn't even matter that much. And then if you try to exactly like he said, it becomes this political issue and it becomes they're looking for that almost. They're looking for that. And the funny thing, to, the funny thing I've noticed is that over the last three years, the people that have the most political repercussions in a negative way from this are the people that are out there battling anti-vax nonsense. I have a number of friends who've been dragged into, do I just say drug, dragged into some sort of, yeah. No, I'm going back to drugged. I like drugged. <laughs> drugged into some meeting with some sort of uh, superior at their work because like, hey, this person here did not like the way you, your tone when you respond to them on Twitter. And the person will be like, yeah, but did you see the part where they called me a Nazi for wanting kids vaccinated? And like, they're like, yeah, but still, you can't do that. And then those are the people being censored. Those are the people who are being affected. I'm seeing more of the effects and more of the the cancel culture from people trying to fight for vaccines and for to fight for the immunosuppressed and to fight for real science here than I, I've seen from these other people. And I'll say this is a pet peeve of mine because one group of uh, healthcare workers has been silenced this pandemic, and that's uh, the healthcare workers who died of COVID. So uh, I, I know uh, three people at my hospital who died. I think a total of, of six or seven died in the, in the first wave. Um, and you know you don't hear from them. 
Like they're totally silent. Uh, and it, you know, when, when someone like Jay Bhattacharya says, I have been silenced, I have been censored, it sort of makes my skin crawl. I mean, this man met with President Trump, advised DeSantis, has been testifying in courts. He's, he's a celebrity, as are pretty much all of the doctors I write about. That's the point, is that they, that they got massive platforms during the pandemic and yet still consider themselves some of its chief victims. Yeah. So also. he was saying that he was silenced into six different AP microphones at the White House. He's not allowed <laughs> to speak into eight different microphones at NBC. That's what like that's that's the bit that they're trying to say. Woe is me, I can't talk. Anyway, commercial break. Let's roll that. Um <laughs> All right. Let's let's try let's try to be fair and balanced here. Let's try to give them some credit. What what do you think the um some of these contrarians have done well, these people who have been sort of leading the medical revolt against vaccines and vaccinations universally. What have they done well in retrospect? Oh, boy, that's a tough question I wasn't expecting. Um, I, I think they've gotten big audiences for themselves. Um, I, I think they've done that well. Um, they've been good at branding is what you're saying. They've learned yeah. that. I think most, you know, I think they were all relatively uh, pro-vaccine for older people and for vulnerable people. Um, so that's, I, I suppose, a, a check mark in their favor. Although, again, just to repeat myself, I think that made them seem more credible when they recommended against vaccinating uh, uh, children. Um, it, it's really hard for me to think about things that 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 they got right. I mean, you know, some of them were maybe making them a ca the case uh, at the big when, when children first became eligible to be vaccinated, that maybe we should be sending some of these vaccines overseas instead. And, I, you know, I, I that wasn't an entirely unreasonable thing, even if it was uh, kind of a pipe dream. I mean, there's no way that an American administration would send American made vaccines to a foreign country. But, you know, in theory, it was probably the right thing to do. But none of them pivoted to become uh pro-vaccine for children once other countries got abundant vaccine, although there are many still that are missing out on the vaccines, which is horrible and a different uh, different topic. Um, but I'm not really sure that, that they got anything right. But I think that they would say, you know, definitely we did, you know, that, that we were right that COVID was nothing to worry about after uh, the first wave or that the vaccine turned out to be extremely dangerous for a disease that is extremely mild. They investigated themselves and they found that they did nothing wrong. I do have a question, though. In the beginning, towards the end, when the vaccines were becoming available for people 18 years and under, 10 and under, etc., were they were they arguing the point that vaccines for children are a waste, as in they, that herd immunity, sorry, herd immunity will provide better protection for society as a whole, or were they arguing that? I mean, obviously, a little different differ by person, but overall, are they arguing that the vaccines are inherently dangerous for people under the age of 18? So this is, that's an interesting question because the, the rationale for not vaccinating children shifted a lot throughout the pandemic, the same way that there was a campaign to not vaccinate adults that got started by anti-vaxxers in the spring of 2020 when the pandemic first started, the movement to leave children unvaccinated against COVID by these contrarian doctors, specifically V.N.A. Prasad, started uh, in January 2021, five months before any child had been vaccinated. And he then uh, wrote an article, uh, called, I think in Stat News, maybe it doesn't matter, but you know, called Why Children Don't Need the Vaccines to Return to School. And essentially, he thought at the time that just vaccinating uh, masses of American children would lead to them having fevers and sore arms. And essentially, he thought the pandemic was going away in the spring of 2021. So his main argument then was why vaccinate children if the pandemic is abating? Okay, fast forward a year, and one of his main arguments for not vaccinating children was they've all had COVID already. So what's the point? Why are you vaccinating children once they've all had COVID? So whatever the facts on the ground were, they supported his position that children did not need to be vaccinated. And you talk a little bit about side effects. I mean, this is a major chapter of the book, this chapter on vaccine myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, which can occur in most commonly in young men after their second vaccine dose. And it did occur. Um, but 
every study describes that as having a favorable prognosis. And I don't know of any uh, children, American children who have died from the vaccine. Matter of fact, I may, may, may have heard of convincingly one case in the entire world just very recently of a young girl in Japan who died of the vaccine. Uh, but they treated that as a fate worse than death. Uh, and I, I'm really not exaggerating when I say that. They would, they'd say, uh, you know, write articles, you know, we need to take uh, vaccine myocarditis seriously, it can lead to problems later on. Uh, they would say, you know, they even worried about subclinical myocarditis. Like if, if a child had no symptoms and you just drew their blood and you found a marker of inflammation, that was this potentially catastrophic thing. Meanwhile, actual death from the virus, they minimized. They wrote articles called Young People Should Not Live in Fear uh, of, of COVID, and they mocked people who tried to avoid it. So literal death was treated as less worrisome than potential side effects from the vaccine. Shocking stuff. So at this point, let's just recap. How many deaths in the United States have there been roughly total because of COVID? And, and I know that there's going to be people who are going to argue about how that's coded, et cetera. And how many of them, how many deaths of children in this country due to COVID? Yeah, so in the whole country, there have been 1.1 to 1.2 million deaths so far. Uh, and again, it's important to note that when you're talking about deaths, there are sources of both undercounting and overcounting. Uh, so a, a death may be overcounted uh, in, in sort of the rare instance of, you know, someone who was going to have a heart attack and they tested positive for COVID, uh, you know, and they but they died of a heart attack that they would have died of anyway. And then there's a lot of sources for over for undercounting that a lot of coroners, especially early in the pandemic, were reluctant to put COVID on death certificates because families asked them not to this sort of thing. Um, and COVID deaths may have gone unrecognized, right? If someone had COVID in two months later had a heart attack, uh, you know, is that a COVID death? It can be sort of hard to tell. And, and all of these problems uh, affect children as well. So with the flu, for example, uh, before the pandemic and during the pandemic too, uh, the CDC would collect a raw, raw tally of flu deaths, which was around you know one to 200 kids per year, but they recognized that they weren't capturing all flu deaths. So they would also report an estimated flu deaths, which sometimes could be double the number of, of, uh, of dead children. So, so far the CDC data tracker uh, reports that uh, around 2,200 children have died of COVID. Um, again, this may be their sources of underestimation and overestimation. It's not really clear that every single case has been reported to the CDC. And there was a study of CDC death certificates of children. And it did find that a substantial number of children who were said to die of COVID probably died of other things like car crashes, for example. But one thing that some of these contrarian doctors did is they used this low pediatric death rate. The fact that we did a decent job of protecting children at the start of the pandemic as evidence that they didn't need protecting at all. So they would say things like more children died of suicide than COVID. Okay, but that's because we used the, all the measures that you opposed to keep the pediatric death rate low. You know, so what would have happened had we listened to them and let COVID run rampant among 73 unmillion unvaccinated children, uh, you know, either at the pandemic start or when the Great Barrington Declaration was written in October 2020. Um, yeah. I don't know for sure, uh, but I think thousands more children would have yeah. died. Pediatric hospitals would have been swamped. Many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of children more would have yeah. been hospitalized. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I sort of liken yeah. this to... To, to, yeah. to, there's a, a line from Homer from The Simpsons where Homer yells at Marge, you know, you made me buy all these smoke detectors and we haven't even had a fire yet. That was sort of that was sort of their attitude uh, yeah. towards pediatric yeah. COVID. Yeah. On that note as well, um, the the uh, the the main writer slash financier for the Great um, Barrington Declaration, the the guy who was um, promoting child labor, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey, yeah. Jeffrey Tucker would uh, would make the same argument about children working in knife factories, right? Children that aren't in knife factories don't get cut. Therefore, we can put children back into the knife factories. <laughs> like exactly. it's the same level of logic, right? 
it's right. so much easier to write at the edges. You know, the people you can write the stuff without repercussions to some degree because you can always blame it on something else and you can always be arguing against what's happening because there's no way to prove it otherwise. It's very frustrating. I'm sure you're frustrated having to. How did you write a book about all this without losing a little bit of your sanity, my friend? Oh, I, I I think I did lose a little bit of my sanity. Um, you know, uh, you know, compiling, for example, about fifteen pages of it are just doctors declaring the pandemic over. And yeah, you have uh, a nice segment in your book where you just wrote over like a long list of these people saying, <laughs> "Oh, herd immunity has been reached. Herd immunity has been reached. Oh, it's over. It's over. It's over." Like time and time and time and time again. It's like a scoreboard. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, but I wasn't I wasn't alone. I mean, you know, you've it's done petty you know, and I love it. It's petty know, and I love it. <laughs> but it's not petty. It's just quoting these. Doctors. I know. I it's know. Just, you know, uh, you know, but but I certainly wasn't alone. I mean, sort of other people have done, uh, you know, wonder, you know, wonderful sort of work in this space. I, I, I think what I found you know, most sad about it is that that I sort of had to do it at all. You know, that that there were so many doctors who unexpected to me um, embraced this sort of pro-virus philosophy. Uh, a lot of these doctors I admired before the pandemic, and I had quoted them favorably in some of my other non-bestselling books. I'm a non, I'm a, 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 an author of multiple non-bestsellers, in case you didn't know. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but the, and, and, and some of them I, I admired. I mean, this guy, Dr. John Ioannidis, was a, a giant of uh, evidence-based medicine. Vinay Prasad, who I thought he wrote this book, Ending Medical Reversal. I wonder if I would still find it great. But, you know, just a very good book calling for better evidence in medicine before we make decisions. Um, but here they were treating this virus uh, in a way that they would never treat a drug or never, you know, let everyone get it. It'll be just fine. You know, kids will be yeah. just fine. You know, they would never do that with a medication, nor should they do that with a medication. They would demand ultra rigorous testing before unleashing it on every children in the world, every child in the world. But because this was natural, eh, all the rules out the window. Okay, my last question for you here. You mentioned a number of the these misinformation spreaders, the misinformation dozen, and you mentioned that you knew one of them before this, and that it sounds like you were friends beforehand. Have you tried to reach out to that person and would you consider it? And do you think it's even possible or do you think at this point it's a lost cause? We're, we're, we're too far into separate camps at this point. So the person who I knew was Dr. Kelly Brogan, and she was a psychiatrist who trained with me at NYU uh, from about 2006 to 2009, something, something like that. And she quickly became one of America's most famous and outspoken anti-vaccine doctors. And so she is someone who does at present uh, every wacky thing you could possibly imagine. She believes she does not believe in germ theory. She believes coffee enemas cure cancer. Uh, she believes, you know, you should drink your own urine. I mean, just weird sort of disgusting stuff. And she was actually sort of very influential in my life and in that it was because of her that I began to learn about the anti-vaccine movement. And for the past decade, I have been writing and studying it um, and, and I've learned everything that I could about it. And it really prepared me well for this moment. Um, I, I think at this point, we are just completely on different planets. Um, I, I think that most of the doctors I write about want nothing to do with me. I think that they view me, you know, they, they, they want me and my book to, to fall into oblivion. So they, they, they never bother to try to refute me at all. And I think they view me as sort of a scold and they wish that they, they feel that it's, it's, I'm in really no position to, to correct them at all. Who am I? Just this doctor in New York City to, to say that they, you know, these masters of critical appraisal, these masters of evidence-based medicine have gotten anything wrong. They'll, they'll claim to, to want discussion and debate, but the minute you offer it, ah, oh, you're personally attacking me. Please stop. Ad hominem. Ad hominem. Ad hominem. Yeah, exactly right. They say that word the same way Joe Pesci says, okay, 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 in Lethal Weapon 3. Okay, 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 okay. Ad hominem, ad hominem, ad hominem, ad hominem. All right. Thank you. It's been so fantastic having you on talking about this. Let's get the plugs in. Uh, so plug tell us, tell, plug it. Let's plug away. Tell us where people can find the book and learn more about you. So uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So the book can be found on Amazon. Um, you can also get it from Red Hawk Publishing. We don't have a Kindle version yet, but eventually we will. 
Um, you can find me on Twitter at 19 Joho, and you can find my uh, columns on science-based medicine. I write there uh, two to three times a month. And you know, one thing about my publisher, they are wonderful. They got the book out quickly. They really cared about it. Uh, but they're small. They don't have a marketing team. So it's really just going to be sort of word of mouth uh, that gets this book out there. So uh, if you read it and like it, you know, please, please suggest it. And kind of like you said about the podcast, please, please re- leave, leave a review. You know, I, I, I don't intend for this book to be easy reading. I, I've gotten some feedback on it so far that people have had to, you know, read a chapter and take a walk and put it down. And that's really uh, what I hope it it it, it uh, causes in people pain <laughs> yeah it's a great yeah. book we recommend it um so highly recommend it in fact so please check it out uh young parker where can people find you where can they listen to your sweet soothing sounds my sweet soothing sounds to listen to after you read jonathan's book uh and have more tears in your eyes is going to be uh wherever you get podcasts uh modern a modern proposal uh, you can follow me on 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 the Twitter, the Twatter, uh, whatever you choose to call it, at uh, modern underscore proposal or Parker J writes. Um, you, I have a personal Instagram. Good luck. Okay. And uh, yeah, and it, if it's all right with you, Doctor Hoda, several yeah. letters, and yeah. you, Jonathan, I th- I think the good people deserve a, just one of the quotes that you put in this book. Is that all right with you guys? Yeah, let's close with that. Let's do Be it. my guest. Right. From this page, you're talking about the effects of real people in the real world. Right. We talked about a little bit earlier, talking about how, um, you know, the laptop class, they were insulated. They didn't have to they don't have to go out. But for most, you know, for the working class, um, they had to go out into the world. And this was about someone who worked at a poultry um, like, you know, processing plant. Quote. My mom said the guy at the plant said that they had to work to feed America. But my mom was sick, said one of Mrs. Grant's sons. She was a plant worker. Uh, Willie Martin, 34, a teacher in South Carolina. He watched on his phone as his mother took her last breath. Yeah. One of the saddest parts of this whole thing. (laughs) One of the saddest parts of this whole thing is is the way in which so many of these people passed. I mean, mean, especially early on. But I want to reiterate for our 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 nurses our wonderful amazing nurses mm-hmm. that were there the whole time you know we we talk a lot about how patients died early on without their families i mean they didn't necessarily die alone and the nurses took amazing care of these patients um and and did it, it were there for them at so many places in such a brave way i mean really honestly i i am absolutely pandering to the nurses that listen to the show yes but it's also true the two things can coexist what they did and my pandering so um they were there for them but but the fact that families weren't is that's always gonna that's always gonna be a tragedy that we are gonna live with in this country yeah no i i I wrote about it in the book and i just wrote a science-based medicine article about it 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 really compounded uh the the experience for everyone i mean i remember one uh during the first wave a 35 year old man died and his father yelled at us that he felt we hadn't done everything we could to save his son and had he been there he would have seen we did everything we could to save his son and you know the fact that he wasn't there uh you know it's probably going to create a a hole and a you know a, a deficit in his life uh, above and beyond his son that his son dying forever and it's an extreme tragedy you're absolutely right on that pleasant note we're gonna close <laughs> up thank you so much for listening everyone <laughs> yeah yeah what a wonderful way to end a podcast thank you so much. <laughs> hey, cheers thank, have a great day <laughs> thank you for thank you for coming on all right good talking to you both good talking right, to you guys so the show is sponsored by kleenex <laughs> What are the, uh, besides MD, do you have any other letters behind your name? Uh, P-I-M-P. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.